Shit Platypus Says, episode 50. For the 50th episode of our SPS podcast, we have two special segments for you. The first segment covers the recent and still ongoing cost of living protests organized by the left in Great Britain, Germany and Austria. SPS co-host Lisa and I have attended protests in Leipzig and Vienna, where we recorded sound bites and interviews with several leftist activists. Later we will discuss these interviews and the current crisis on the left with SPS co-host Rebecca and former president of the platypus-affiliated society Ephraim, both are based in the UK. In the second half of the podcast, Rebecca and Lisa are sitting down with our members Audrey and David to talk about how Platypus has hosted the conversation on the left on the topic of sexual liberation. For that purpose, they all went into our archive, which means they went through our panel discussions, PR articles and podcast episodes to talk about how we as an educational project could make sense of all the material we have collected during the more than 15 years of Platypus. Alright, episode 50, still here, still necessary, let's go. For this segment of our podcast, Shit Platypus Says, we will play some short interviews Lisa and I recorded at recent cost of living protests in Germany and Austria. Afterwards we will discuss them with our UK members Ephraim and Rebecca. We'll talk about the situation of the left in the UK vis-a-vis -vis the German left regarding these recent protests. We'll talk about their connection to the crisis of the Labour Party in the UK and the left party in Germany as well as their meaning for the continuing death of the left in our current historical moment more generally. The protest Lisa attended took place in Leipzig on the 5th of September and was organized by the German left party, Die Linke. It was organized against the recent energy and social policies of the German government under the slogan Heißer Herbst gegen soziale Kälte, which roughly translates to the hot autumn against the social cold. Several smaller leftist groups, but also right-wing splinter groups, like Freie Sachsen, were present at the protest in Leipzig. During the protest, Lisa interviewed members of International Youth, which is an anti-capitalist youth organization, and uh, is part of the Federation of Class Struggle Organizations. Furthermore, she interviewed a member of the Socialist German Workers' Youth, that is the official youth organization of the Communist Party of Germany. Lisa also interviewed members of the group Revolution, which is the youth organization of the German section of the League for the Fifth International. The protest I attended here in Vienna took place on the 1st of October. It was organized by a broad leftist coalition called Es Reicht. In English, it's enough. This coalition, newly formed, includes, among others, the Austrian Communist Party, Junge Linke, 
Fridays for Future, System Change Not Climate Change, as well as autonomous anti-fascist groups. I have interviewed a member of an autonomous collective called Zwangsräumungen Verhindern, in English Stop Evictions, and an unaffiliated activist. We will put the links to all these different organizations in uh, the description of this episode. All right, here we go. Hi, so uh, why are you here? What is this protest about? So this protest is about increasing prices and inflation because in, in Austria we have like inflation of about 10%, um, which is a drastic increase. It has been the biggest increase since the Second World War, which I think speaks for itself. Um, and yeah. Okay, so um, are you affiliated with any leftist groups? Yes, we're affiliated with Zwangsräumungen Verhindern Wien. Um, in English, it's uh, stop um, delocations, mm -hmm. and yeah. So our main focus is to stop evictions and try to reframe evictions out of like the problem of an individual into a more societal context that it's not the fault of an individual that they are not like they're not able to pay their rents anymore, but it's like capitalism and society and um, housing market that increases and increases the prices and therefore uh, individuals cannot pay anymore. Why do you think this is a leftist topic, inflation or the cost of living crisis? Because inflation is something that affects everybody and it is Inrooted in the capitalist system and since the capitalist system itself is about dividing uh, the population into those who have and those who work and those who own the work labor um, therefore for us it's a leftist um, issue okay, great thanks a lot thanks hi so um what is this demonstration about? Uh, what, why are you here today? It's about rising energy prices and I'm here today as compared to last year we had an inflation this month about 10, 10.5% so even in my near surroundings I know people who can't pay their bills anymore. Prices are rising even if you for energy but also when you go to the supermarket and on the other hand um, profits are rising they are rising then they haven't been rising in the last centuries before so why I'm here today is because I want to change this and for me personally it's really important to um, that it's leftist, leftist groups who uh, kind of catch this, uh, catch this movement and we don't want to uh, give space to the right, to the right wing. Are you affiliated with any leftist groups here? Uh, no. 
So, and why do you think it is important that there are no like right-wing people here? And why do you think this is a leftist protest? Um, yeah, because um, I think this is kind of a crisis we have to uh, to solve or try to solve in solidarity. We have to. Um, kind of build a broad movement and also build a transnational, international movement and that's not the kind of thing our right wing's gonna do. Um, their movements are not built on solidarity, they are built on uh, the interests of a few, of a few white male Austrian people uh, and so for me it's important that we use this crisis and find answers to this crisis that have a more solidaric approach. Thank you very much. I am here with Selma. We are here at the protests, uh, which are called um, Hot Autumn Against Social Cold. So can you please tell us what organization you are from? Hi, I'm Salma and I'm uh, in the SDAJ. This is the Socialist German Working Youth. And um, can you tell us a little bit more what the more general aim of um, the SDAJ um, is and how the participation in the protests help to achieve this goal or this aim of your organization? So our aim is to uh, organize students in um, universities, in schools, or younger workers in their um, companies to help them to organize their colleagues, their students around them, and to actually bring these political ideas and the political protest into the schools and into the organizations they're working on. So how does the protest help you to do that? So first of all, we are here to get together with other ones, to organize with other left people and uh, to get in a conversation with them. And uh, on the other side, we are here to actually get to know other people, younger people who need help or who want to work at their universities or in their schools to speak about the problems, uh, what they are facing at their place, at their homes or in their schools. Okay, great. Um, there was a huge debate beforehand on the left as well as in mainstream media that there is a so-called dangerous coalition between right and left on this protest. What do you think about the debate? Does this discussion distract the overall purpose of these protests? Or is it a necessary debate that helps um, us bringing the actual demands forward? No, I think it's very important that there's this debate because there are a lot of right-wing people which actually try to um, get the people together on their position and to let them demonstrate on right-wing's position. And this is not actually getting us um, a brighter future because uh, the right-wing people are not actually in the idea of helping around them, the people or actually organizing in their interests. So we need, I think we need a de debate and we even need a debate with this right-wing people, of course not the hard, strong, organized ones, but the ones which are actually right now facing big problems in the next month, like they have no payment anymore for their rents, they have no money for food and so on. So of course there are people which actually really need help and we need to be a, a strong left side which can help them and we need to debate with them so that they are not standing on the wrong side. So do you think the left is in the position to take responsibility for this social crisis we face right now? We have to. 
even that we are maybe not in all of the cities and all places in Germany in this strength, but we need to be that. And this is now the point where we actually have to collect all, all our strengths and all our power to get together and actually to get together with this people. So yes, we definitely need to. Awesome, this was great, thank you. You're really welcome. <laughs> okay, I'm here with Paul and Harris. Um, could you uh, tell us where you're organized at the moment? Yeah, we are organized in the Federation of Class Fighting Organizations. So it's, a, uh, it's an organization where more than one group is in it. Uh, there's a solidarity network in it, so the International Youth, the Woman Collective, and the... Betriebskampf. Um, uh, yeah, and we are organized in Leipzig. We are not uh, just here, uh, a regional group or organization. We are a organization which is about our whole Germany, and this federation exists since Eastern this year. Yeah. What is the general aim um, of um, your organization? Well, I'm personally from the international youth, but. Um, yeah, the collective of all, of all four organizations is working towards the goal of socialism. Um, and yeah, I, I think that should be our goal to work to. And we're here to, to interact with the masses, to talk uh, with people that are not politicized yet, and to, yeah, to get to know each other and learn from each other, but also organizing, of course, to fight, uh, to, to fight for socialism in the end. So. How does uh, participating in this protest help us to achieve socialism? So, first and all, we have to say that this is not our first uh, protest which we are organized, organize, uh, where we are. So, we organized uh, protests since December 2021 uh, in Leipzig Western. And then we decided, okay, we have to fight against the war. We were going in the middle of our city. We make there uh, our demonstrations. And we, we worked all the time to this uh, crisis uh, stuff because this crisis is not just something which happens now. It's existed since 2019. And that's the point we, we have to get in our minds. So. And uh, yeah, so Corona was one point which makes the crisis a little bit harder. Now the war, which makes it also a little bit harder and yeah we don't know what will come up next and yeah so we are fucked up with this situation and that's why we are standing here and why we want to discuss with the people but not here also in our city uh, parts where we live and yeah that's the point and um, we are right here right now right here because we got um, views from the far right over there and but we also got social democrats who are talking um, and this, to the same problems or about the same problems, but different solutions, I'd say. And yeah, we call ourselves more revolutionary, um, and so we're trying to make this standing point quite yeah, obvious. So uh, yeah, that's also why we're exactly here. So there was a huge debate beforehand on the left as well as in mainstream media, and that there is a so-called dangerous coalition between right and left. So, what do you think about the debate? All in all, I have to say, if there wouldn't be this demonstration now, uh, we would do our own protests and bring that up to the streets. And also when we were at the streets all the time, we had all the time to do something, uh, not to do, we have to uh, argument against the right-wing people and so on, because they are, of course, everywhere. So that's why they are also here. And yeah, I think we have uh, not to, think about 
what happens here. We have to think about what will happen in the future. We have to make all the time our appointments in the streets. Uh, we have to uh, go on all the time. And yeah, we don't have to sit on our couch, watch TV and say, oh, everything is fucked up and hang up in fucking social medias. Uh, we just have to uh, make our points on the streets where the people are. And that's it. Yeah. And the street is the room that we are trying to take from the fascists, of course. So we cannot take the room uh, for fascist propaganda. We can just sit in our room and uh, talk shit on social media. Um, so that's why we are here. So that's the whole point of being here. And fun fact, on, on top of that, um, there is the interaction with the masses in, in the same, uh, same time. So through us talking about the problems and uh, showing up real solutions to those problems, we are taking the room for the fascists in just one tour. Okay. Do you think the left is able to take responsibility for the social crisis that we face right now? Um, yeah, <laughs> I think so. Uh, I think this proves the point, this uh, big demonstration that we're here right now, the protest. And we, we have the solutions, the people just have to get to know them. And that's also why we're here on the streets. And uh, yeah, we can show up those solutions, which are not demands on the government or something. So we have to just organize for uh, a greater goal. And, uh, This crisis just one step to the next crisis and the next war. Um, yeah. I think also that the selection of each left group has to uh, throw overboard that everybody has to know okay, what we were doing in the last time. So the ones they are fighting against fascism, the others they are going on the streets, talk with the people, the other people they can talk well, the other people they... Yeah, we have to come together, that's the point. And uh, I think this is uh, maybe the first time where we, everybody is sitting here and hearing the... Uh, speeches and so on and that's the point where we have to come together and not to split up but we uh, the point is that we don't have to think that now is the point where we have to think about what we can do what we can do better and so on the point is we have to through capitalism uh, in the garbage of the history and to make socialism that's the point i think yeah. thanks for the interview and have a good time here yeah, thank you I am here with Jorik and Peach. Can you tell us where you're organized at the moment? We're organized at, uh, in the group Revolution. It's a communist Trotskyist youth organization and um, we're an internationalist organization. Um, yeah, it's um, basically an organization which is um, for a world revolution um, against capitalism. And um, yeah, we are active against racism, sexism, anti-Semitism and things like that. You know. <laughs> yeah, uh, we fight in uh, solidarity with the League for uh, Fifth International and um, we believe that the other four internationals uh, are degenerated and are uh, kind of broken and we need to uh, build a, a new uh, Fifth International to recognize the mistakes that were made under the um, other four internationals and to build an international uh, workers movement. Okay, great. So you are today here participating at the protest. So what would you say, how does this participation right here 
does help you to achieve the fifth international or the goal of um, the broader goal of a socialist global revolution? Well, basically, we think these protests is kind of a good reflection where people from the working class are at the moment, you know. People are organized in the left party of Germany, people are organized in different um, organizations, but the big organizations we think are reformist organizations. We don't think that they will actually achieve the goal we have. So we think we need to intervene in these protests to basically get our claims in here and to talk to people, to distribute our leaflets and things like that. So um, that people actually get the chance to think about a broader perspective and get you know, um, across the, the rim of thinking in a reformist uh, manner, yeah. Yeah, um, and especially because this topic of this demonstration, um, it affects um, every part of the working class. Everybody in the working class is um, in some way affected by this, and so this is a point where we as revolutionaries uh, can talk with the workers and where they now stand and talk with them and make our positions clear and uh, get them to know our program, our uh, demands and so on. There has been a debate on the left as well as in mainstream media that there is a so-called dangerous coalition at these protests between left and right. What do you think about the debate? I thought it was kind of a thing that was made up by the right, that they said, okay, we, we want to claim parts of the protest. I would say pretty clear that it's not a good perspective for the working class to work together with right forces, um, because it's just dangerous for us. You know, like people come here and they are not um, very clear about their positions, and when there are right people on the protests, um, it's a big danger of them, you know, getting in touch with those ideologies. And um, we have to fight against this. Our um, position of our organization is actually that we work together with left forces and working class forces, of course. But we don't think the right forces are working class forces in any way. So we would clearly say, no, don't work together. It isn't very helpful to kind of construct this um, alignment of uh, left and right forces. We need to present our own perspective, our own goals, that we uh, can show the working class that we actually have a perspective, that we have a program how to solve this crisis, how to overcome capitalism, how we can achieve that and how um, this achievement, how this would look. We actually have a pretty concrete perspective and this is something um, uh, the right doesn't have and which is uh, pretty um, dangerous about the right because um, in that that they have uh, not uh, so complex, not a so uh, thought out um, program and demands and they um, have it easier to agitate non-political, uh, non educated workers that um, uh, first of uh, kind of uh, think okay they say they stand for my demands so they do and um, here we come in as revolutionaries to really talk to the demands of the working class and present a perspective. 
Okay, one last question at yeah. the end. Do you think that the left is in the position to take responsibility for this social crisis that we face right now? I think the reformist left, which is actually the biggest force we have in the real politics in Germany, is not right now because they're divided, kind of, and um, they are pretty weak at the moment. Um, I think we need to build up a new movement and um, we have to organize people in a new way. Uh, so I don't think that the, the left, how it is actually right now, um, the left party, for example, is not really able to do it. Also, the, the unions, for example, are pretty weak at the moment um, and um, pretty reformist. And it was, yeah, normally, in former times, it was a different way, you know, to do it. And we, we have to get back to those um, kind of organization of working class. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for this interview. You're Thanks. Welcome. Bye. Hi Ursula, nice to meet you. Can you briefly tell us which organization you are with? Ich bin hier mit Ursula. I'm from the Schönefelder Höfe and Angerkrottendorf Tenants Association. The Tenants Association fights back against Vonovia, a property management company. Our main goal is to figure out their obscure operating costs and besides that to get more tenants to fight back against the landlord. This is because Vonovia's goal is to intimidate its tenants by not responding to letters properly or at all. Und ähm, auch äh, auf Schreiben überhaupt nicht oder ähm, nicht richtig zu antworten. How is participating here in the protests today important for the Tenants Association? Wir wollen uns das anhören, aber ich We want to listen to what's going on. But I'll start with myself. We were already here once in 1989, right here on Augustusplatz, and demonstrated on the hot 9th of October, which was very, very critical. It was self-evident for me then that when a demonstration or rally would be called for, I would participate. The point is, of course, that energy prices and everything related to them have skyrocketed. This can't go on. The tenants can pay that. The more people oppose this, the more I hope or we hope that they'll back down. We have already heard here in the rally that something absolutely has to change. What the government has granted us at the moment is only a drop in the bucket. To what extent do you think it is enough to just put pressure on the government? This is first and foremost a war between Russia and Ukraine. But I think there are other powers behind it. I don't think it's okay at all that Germany is willing to supply weapons to other states. I am always against that. In my eyes, whoever supplies weapons has blood on their hands. Many people lose their lives and their homes in war. I am fundamentally against it and I can only repeat what I said. I don't think it's okay that Germany has agreed to supply weapons. 
can the left, either as a political tendency or if you mean the party, die Linke, take responsibility for this crisis? Ich weiß nicht, ob sie stark genug ist. Sie hat sehr, sehr viel Gegenwind, aber sie kann immer nur... I don't know if it's strong enough. It has to fight strong headwinds. But it can only keep pointing out again and again that it makes no sense to build peace if more and more weapons are supplied. And if Ukraine keeps demanding deliveries of weapons, the German government should have enough backbone to say no more. There must be peace. And they should have a diplomat. I'm thinking of Hans-Dietrich Genscher, who was a foreign minister at the time and who I think had very good diplomatic skills. It doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman, someone like this should be sent there and bring all the disputants to the table diplomatically. Okay, vielen Dank für das Gespräch, hat mich sehr gefreut. Okay, so um, now I have with me uh, our members Rebecca and Ephraim from London, UK, and Lisa from uh, Leipzig. So we all just listened to uh, the shotgun interviews that uh, Lisa and I recorded at the cost of living protests in Vienna and Leipzig. And we wanted to um, bring the, in uh, members of Platypus from the UK, which is where the, um, so to speak, the franchise of the Enough is Enough campaign originally started. And we wanted to hear some perspective on, um, well, how's the situation of the campaign looking in the UK? What's going on there? So, uh, Rebecca and Ephraim, thanks for uh, being on the show. Thanks for having us. What, what's your what's your impression? Like hearing the, the shotgun interviews, the impressions um, from the protests in Austria and Germany, What do you make of it in, in comparison or in context uh, with uh, the protests in, in London and the UK? Rebecca, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I'll come in. So I think um, one of the things that most that to me is that with the, with the impressions I got with these protests is that they were very much organized by um, leftist groups, um, individual leftists who were there to protest the cost of living crisis. Um, with the Enough is Enough campaign in the UK, it's actually a kind of a coalition activist um, movement with the labor left um, or ex-labor left. So kind of Jeremy Corbyn, Zara Sultana being one of the key kind of figures here, as well as um, unions who have um, kind of just come out of a, a big summer protest. So um, these would include like the RMT um, with Micklin. So actually at the Enough is Enough protest, which happened about... Um, At the beginning of October, uh, both Corbyn and McLynch kind of um, gave speeches, you know, um, at this demonstration, which was also well attended by um, the wider far left of the UK. So like the Trotskyist groups, um, the Socialist Worker Party was huge there. Um, but the, I also ran into some contacts from the Ouvrier, who are some French Trotskyists, and um, Tusk, um, which is kind of one of these, uh, the electoral organization of the um, Socialist Party uh, were also very present. So I think one of the key maybe differentiations is actually in something to highlight is that um, 
you know, what's playing out with the enough is enough, um, you know, which on the surface is kind of like this anti-austerity protest, which in itself is interesting. Um, there, there's also this kind of laying out of um, kind of grievances that the left has had with the Labour Party, just as the Labour Party is seeming to kind of um, be a viable election option um, in the in the UK. You know, people are really expecting them to get into power at the next election. I would just add that um, what struck me as similar between listening to the protesters in, in Germany and Austria and the UK um, is that there is a real crisis around inflation and energy prices, prices um, and it really is uh, affecting and going to affect a very large number of people in, in serious ways. Um, and this is kind of driving some um, different forms of of you know popular protest at a time when the left is extremely disorganized uh, and the left knows itself to be extremely disorganized and is kind of coming off the tail end of the defeat of the Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders kind of neo-social democratic turn um, and so the sense I got listening to the protesters was that they have kind of turned up to try and find out who's there and what they're saying. Um, there wasn't a sense of the protesters themselves leading the uh, leading anyone, um, but rather turning up and being like, oh, maybe this is an opportunity. Maybe there are going to be people from beyond our small left milieu that we will be able to somehow create contact with um, to get back in touch with kind of, you know, popular working class discontents that they feel they've become disconnected from. Yeah, maybe just to jump on that point, because I, I think it was interesting that this controversy um, uh, Lisa mentioned in her recordings um, uh, regarding, quote unquote, like right wing people at the protests, who is leading the protests, who is attending the protests, came up here in uh, Vienna as well. And it was a weird situation because the, the protest here in Vienna was, was relatively small. It was actually very small. Um, and there were, at least from what I could, could observe, no, absolutely none, like, people there who were not already part of, like, the leftist student milieu. And still, you know, what, what the, the sense I got also from the short interview I did was that it is very important, you know, to not have you know, quote unquote, right wing people there. So what's the, is, is there a similar discussion regarding these cost of living protests in, in the UK? How's that, how's that, you know, coming up? Interestingly, that there, there doesn't seem to be the same phenomenon um, that you have in Germany and Austria of um, the left being worried about uh, right wing uh, protests against the cost of living. Um, although I'm sure that fear is kind of in the background, they have the same idea that we need to lead discontents before other people do. Um, what is interesting, however, is the role of the, the kind of alliance between the RMT and the Corbynite elements of the Labour left. Uh, because during the Brexit campaign, when the RMT were uh, vocal proponents of Brexit, um, and the Labour left were were mostly Remainers, um, although there was some split over that. Um, 
the one of the leaders of the RMT, Eddie Dempsey, um, who was campaigning for Brexit on the left, uh, made a speech in which he made some comments that people who supported Tommy Robinson and the EDL had real grievances that needed to be um, dealt with by the left. And this got him kind of cancelled and no platformed by prominent left-wing figures like Ash Sarkar and Owen Jones. Um, however, in the present, with the RMT leading strikes and being one of the kind of coalition partners of the Enough is Enough campaign, uh, Eddie Dempsey has become the darling of the left and, you know, those past uh, differences have been kind of swept under the rug. So that that that's a slightly different issue and it's interesting how that's those past differences are being papered over here right um rebecca or lisa do you want to jump in on that i i would maybe just add that there was no right-wing presence in the protests i mean correct me if i'm wrong but from the shotgun interviews it seemed that there might have been um and i, I remember one of the people you interviewed andreas said that we're trying to find these um people who can be convinced um to the other side right some you know we want to look for those kind of people on the on the fence who might be supporting the right um that actually their real interest lies in um you know with the with leftist politics any presence at the demonstration that i could see at all and in general we've seen um i think very few kind of what would be called right-wing protests in the uk at least in the capital um in response to the cost of living crisis. Um, I think that's, yeah, I'd say it's, you know, as Ephraim said, it's, there's been a strange lack of conversation about the, about the right in that way. Oh, um, but shortly before the Enough is Enough protest, I did intend, attend the anarchist book fair where we attended a speech by the Don't Pay campaign so also very much related to the cost of living crisis. It's kind of a single issue, kind of grassroots organization trying to get people not to pay their energy bills um, as a protest against the um, removal of the price cap, which I think has since been re-implemented. There's kind of a shifting policy on this. And they were very, um, kind of as Ephraim picked up on, um, concerned about that this could be a moment for the right to re-emerge, you know? Um, there were, you know, the word nationalism is kind of thrown around a lot. Um, and I think that was a similar um, concern that was tapped in with the actual protests there. I'd just like to add something else about the right. I think we should be careful about what we mean when we when we talk about that and kind of not accept the left terms in, in doing so. There are a couple of things that they could possibly mean. One is the way people vote. Um, so, you know, are, are Linker going to benefit electorally from these discontents um, or are the RFD, right? So that would be the question. Um, and that's what the left means by the right. And in the UK, it's exactly the same. It's right. Are um, people going to you know, vote for, vote for the Labour Party and get the Tories out based on these discontents? And that would be a left-wing, quote-unquote, use of these discontents. and Or are they going to support the Conservatives or even some kind of, um, kind of discontented faction outside of the Conservatives? 
The other aspect to it is the question of a kind of national conservative resolution of the issues. So um, things like um, British jobs for British workers um, or, um, you know, that one response to the cost of living crisis might be to uh, bring down immigration levels. Um, I think it's an illusion of the left that to think that they are offering anything other than a national or a nationalist resolution um, to the issues. Their demands for the welfare state, um, for jobs at home, are uh, no less national than those that would come from um, conservative parties or so-called uh, right-wing forces. So there's there's a question of of how the crisis is going to be resolved. I mean, obviously, it's it's never really resolved in capitalism, but the kinds of measures that will appear to ameliorate and that people will be demanding for are obviously demands for the state to intervene at the national level. And the left recognises something as right-wing about that, but can't recognise its own um, kind of nationalist politics in that sense. The, the last issue that kind of comes up around the right is and the left is the war in Ukraine. So are you allowed to speak out against the sanctions regime and sending lots of, you know, billions and billions of euros and pounds to uh, support the Ukrainian army um, is an issue that has split the left and in some circles would be seen as right-wing, quote-unquote, to, to talk about that as a cause of the... Uh, the cost of living crisis. Yeah, we have a very controversial figure here in Germany, Sarah Wagenknecht, who is a member of Die Linke. She um, she gave a speech in Parliament where she really um, questioned the sanctions on Russia, and she she um, accused the government of waging an economic war. So she really called it an, called it an economic war, um, and. She asked how it could help um, the Ukraine and how it could hurt Russia if the majority in Germany is impoverished. So, um, yeah, she she did plead um, for diplomatic solutions to end the war and she got a lot of um, support by the AfD by it. And Die Linke, um, it, 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 what happened was a huge... Um, um, conflict inside uh, the party. Many members um, left after this speech and it was also um, discussed whether um, Wagenknecht should be not allowed in the future to give speeches in parliament like this. Um, and I think this is this shows also um, the prominence of the, the war in the background um, of all these protests. And as well as the, the big um, anxiety of the left to have same demands as a party like the AfD. Right, right. Thanks, guys. Um, I want to come back to uh, a point Ephraim raised earlier and maybe try to bring the discussion um, to or, uh, like the greater historical significance of that moment compared to maybe the last... The last decade, especially now, the the demise of the millennial left, the demise of the millennial left's turn towards neo-social democracy, 
And I would, what I would like to do is I want to play a clip from, or like a, a little piece from our dictatorship of the proletariat panel we hosted during our European conference here in Vienna about one month ago. And um, so this, this, this little clip I want to play, it features uh, a speaker from the Irish Workers' Party. You, you will hear his very like uh, strong remarks or parts of it where he argues for the potential of the crisis that will now like arise in the coming months, in the winter. Like basically, you know, the potential of this cost of living crisis. What will be also part of this clip is a little uh, comment Ephraim made on that in the Q&A section of the discussion. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody. Ephraim from Platypus, London. Um, the kind of catastrophism you're putting forward about the coming period um, and the idea that that's somehow a revolutionary opportunity, I would suggest is conditioned by the failure of that recent turn towards neo-social democracy and that in a kind of despairing moment, we look for the, you know, the crash to kind of carry us quickly to some kind of forward place. The growth of the socialist workers movement in Europe in the Second International came not with a crash, but with a boom period, right? Where there was great industrialization in Germany, for example, or in parts of the, the Russian empire. So just to get your response on that, like it actually, when things, when shit really hits the fan, it's not actually necessarily a good time for revolution, especially as the left is, is so um, irrelevant in the greater social processes. I, so I've been a part of like doing social modeling on collapse, crisis and revolution, where we look at long scale historical trends, map many different variables, feed them in and see what leads to social crisis. And what is happening right, right now is predicted already by the model that we're using uh, in 2010. And it's happening now-ish, right? And it really is happening. Like, it, it, we predicted it back then, and now it's happening now. This is, this is a revolutionary crisis that's objectively true. I mean, it's just going to be there. Now, whether or not we can take advantage of it, that's a serious effing question. That's a huge problem, because we are so weak. The socialist movement is incredibly weak. I don't think it's ever been this weak. Like the workers and socialist movement is it at, at its absolute lowest ebb. So this isn't a hope. I'm terrified by this situation because it is like an 1848 situation. It means we're going to be going in with nothing. And what's going to happen is reaction is going to come out the other side, most likely. But we should be preparing for that eventuality and try to make sure that we at least take something out of the revolutionary juncture or don't let the reaction take total control of what happens uh, in that in that uh, situation so yeah yeah so um i think it was a very interesting exchange or a very interesting moment on this particular panel regarding you know like um what have what we have been discussing before i don't know maybe Ephraim, do you want to expand on like this notion of catastrophism and why it comes up now what it means like um like you mentioned in your comment I mean, I think it goes back to the earlier comment I made about the left being disorganized in the present and coming along to cost of living protests because uh, they might be able to kind of meet people who are outside of the um, bubble of their own left circle 
and try and um, reconnect with kind of working class discontents in some way. Um, but I think that there did seem to be on that panel almost a desire for the situation to become very, very bad, um, including even prophesying the collapse of the German economy. Um, and obviously since then, we've had major financial crisis in the UK. Um, and I think there is, you know, just some confusion on the left about what kind of opportunity that would be for them. I don't think it's a very good opportunity for organising people for socialism. Um, and I think it re reflects some despair on the left that um, they hope to be swept along by the crisis um, towards some kind of new situation that will get them out of the inertia which they, which they currently feel all around them. One other thing I'd say about that is the difficulty um, the left is having especially compared to even the 2008 financial crisis, of articulating what this means with respect to capitalism. Um, is this a crisis of capitalism? What would that mean to say that? Um, is this just um, normal part of capitalism? Uh, is this exceptional? Is there, you know, what do they make of capitalist solutions to the crisis? Um, and I think that part of the catastrophism is uh, a desire to have a quick and ready explanation of capitalism. That this is what capitalism does. It massively immiserates people and leads to catastrophe, right? Capitalism is destroying the world. Some of it is inherited from the recent climate activism. And um, I think that is a way of the left trying to avoid the fact that actually in the present, the issue of capitalism is very obscure and the left doesn't have, um, that doesn't feel itself having a good grasp on, on how to explain those dynamics. Um, so, which is actually slightly different from the 2008 moment where there was this so-called return to Marx and, um, you know, theories of, of capitalism. Um, in the present, it seems to be a theory of catastrophe, uh, but that's slightly different. Rebecca, Lisa, do you want to chime in on, on the, the catastrophism of it? I think what's useful about Gavin's comments um, is that he kind of, raised, at least for me, you know, when he's talking about like this absolute catastrophe and the necessity for the left to respond against or that it's actually an opportunity um it raised the specter of kind of like the you know world war one you know and the second international having to face this massive catastrophe um and whether it can um you know and this almost desire to kind of like correct that historical wrong really interesting and this is you know the platypus 101 so you know platypus 101 the left is dead um, is that we are not even ne you're like nowhere near um, this level of organization internationally, um, not to mention even like theoretically consciously um, of being able to address that kind of that kind of catastrophe, you know. And it's also a strange reversal, right, um, of where the 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 emergence of the um, 
working class as a political force was very much connected to the um, production of the crisis of imperialism, you know, be, before the second, the, the first world war, um, you know, organization is, contributes to this, it kind of creates its own crisis. Um, Gavin is almost, you know, it, there's a strange reversal of where actually the crisis is already happening, it's already unmanaged, and that's supposed to actually create this the organizational response, um, you know, which which just should just maybe be noted. Um, no, just just two points. Um, one is that I do want to highlight um, on the question of internationalism. Um, Andreas called the "Enough is Enough" um, coalition a franchise, which is a which is a strange term to call it that way, but it's really. What we do see um, in in regard of the um, disorganization of the left that we have enough is enough in UK, we have enough is enough in Germany, but they do not seem to be connected or linked to each other, but they are inspired. There are some Jacobin um, members or um, authorities that seem to be the link there, but it's not as if these these groups perform a unified goal or something it's it's not really international as it seems to be or as it as it does look like a first um, spot and the second thing what I found really interesting Ephraim is that you brought up 2008 which is um, as well the financial crisis but also um, the the movements that happened before um, the anti-austerity movements in the early uh, 2000s, which seems to be um, the, right now, what we see right now seems to be a strange repetition of that. I don't know if you want to want to say something on that um, and your um, um, observations. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's important, this the 2010s um, anti-austerity after 2008 financial crisis, um, did appear to be a kind of upturn in activism on the left, um, especially around Occupy Wall Street, but in the UK around the uh, cuts to student uh, the um, the student fees um, and cuts to public spending. And one organisation that was formed then, the People's Assembly, is kind of making a comeback now. Um, and there is a kind of repetition of that uh, early 2010s campaigning on the left that type of activism um, and in some ways it's an it's a, a desire to go back before the failed project of of neo-social democracy um, but one other phrase that we discuss in platypus that comes to mind here which comes originally from Bayard Rustin is a cry of protest before accommodation um, and I think that it's it's you know this is a real crisis in Europe and it's going to be resolved in a very conservative manner in a kind of new uh, status quo with lowered horizons in a certain way. And the left is is already accommodating itself to that. And you can see that in the shift from the kind of programme that Corbyn had to the five basic demands of the Enough is Enough campaign. It really is like okay, we didn't get that, just give us these things, please. 
right? Just a re- just a, a real terms weight rise in wages, just a bit more taxes on the rich, um, and we don't and base and the People's Assembly campaign on the fifth of November is general election now. What does general election now mean? It means Keir Starmer becomes prime minister, um, and they're getting ready. You know, they may have some discontents with that, but they're they're also this is a way of preparing themselves to be accommodated to that kind of right-wing resolution of the crisis. All right, guys. Thanks a lot for these comments. Um, as a last last point, I want to bring in our international panel series we're organizing at the moment. It will be a panel series on the cost of living crisis. Um, it will be, there will be panels organized by the chapters in London, in Frankfurt, in Berlin, Leipzig, and here in Vienna as well. And I think, like, Ephraim and Lisa, you are involved in these panel initiatives. Could you give us, like, a brief sense of um, uh, what, 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 what it is about, what, what it is trying to achieve? Like, why, why are we doing this now? I mean, th- this was something that came out of our European conference um in Vienna, actually, where Platypus members from uh, across Europe were able to kind of share their experiences. And we realized that there are these kind of common themes going on, common protests. And we're doing this panel series in tandem across Europe to address those issues um, and to try and get the left um, and activists uh, participating in these campaigns to try and address the um their understanding of what the crisis is, where it comes from, what kind of opportunity it it provides for their idea of what the left should be, um, and to kind of think about how Platypus can actually put that on at an international level. And there are a lot of different um, campaigns popping up in, in Germany, And one has to really question why there are all these different campaigns and coalitions and why there isn't just one or maybe two. But there are a lot of groups that come up and it's not really clear how they do, um, how, how they differ from each other. And at the same time, they do um, distinguish themselves from other campaigns. And the two biggest ones here in Germany are um, Enough is Enough as well as um, Heizungbrot und Frieden, which means um, heating bread and peace. Um, they are all these all these campaigns are more or less linked to the Party Die Linke, which does point to uh, to the crisis of the of this party, as well as a lot of anti-fascist um, groups that try to intervene in all these protests um, as a yeah. Um, separate part who try to define themselves as not being part of, of this party Die Linke. And it's interesting to see um, what their self-understanding is um, and what they do really aim at. The, just to add, the London panel will be on Thursday the 10th of November at the Mayday Rooms on Fleet Street um, and we'll have a range of speakers Uh, we, one thing we're particularly interested in is a kind of split that's emerging between a more anarchist response to the crisis and a more social democratic response. And so we're trying to include voices from both those perspectives, which at the moment aren't don't seem to be speaking to each other, but only among themselves. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. 
we will include links to all uh, these events in the description of the episode. You can find the information on these panel on these panel series on our websites, on our social media pages, or at your local platypus chapter. Yeah, stay stay safe, stay warm. Till next time. Thanks, Andreas. Welcome to Shiplatypus Does. I'm your host, Rebecca, and I'm joined by my co-host, Lisa. And we are sitting down with our members, Audrey and David, to talk about how Platypus has hosted the conversation on the left on the topic of sexual liberation. How we make sense of our own history, our own archive that we've been collecting over the 15 years. Audrey, you go through a lot of the readings that we have on the Platypus syllabus in the kind of sex and the left particularly the new left weeks, as well as kind of going back to Marx and Engels and into the second international, as these were what kind of these new leftists like D'Amelio, like Mitchell were kind of reflecting on. What motivated this recap in this kind of introductory, I think at the time was the introduction to panel, which was then kind of published as an article and reworked a little bit. Why did you think it was a necessary precursor to a panel on, on sex in the left? Yeah, I mean, I think I was mostly just motivated by the younger participants in our reading group and coffee break, and then the people who are in the audience, they, you know, would come and hang out and watch the panel. And uh, I mean, I would always encourage them to just actually do those readings in that lettered week of the syllabus, obviously. Um, They said it way better. Mitchell's, I guess, Althusserian tendencies notwithstanding. Um, But it was really a condensation of those readings. And an attempt to kind of efficiently tackle a handful of taboos <laughs> that I had experienced most directly with participants. So I, I think I wanted it to be like an introductory sort of primer for younger participants who who are sort of thinking about what sexual freedom even means. You know, I had a, a younger participant who started the kink club at UC Berkeley. And, you know, there's this issue of like, well, what's the relationship between like sadomasochism and unfreedom in society and um, how does sex, you know, reflect more or less what is happening or not happening in society. And um, there was also a younger participant who was a member of the RWG, the Revolutionary Workers Group in Berkeley. They have like a, um, a sister organization in France, I believe, but I'm pretty sure that's the only other country where they're active. And he was sort of dating for the first time and looking for advice. You know, sometimes the line blurs between friend and, uh, you know, older member. And, uh, you know, he was insisting upon sex being purely egalitarian. And I remember saying, oh, so you're having bad sex, you know, (laughs) like there's like a question lingering for a lot of people. Like, what does it mean to have, uh, you know, good sex or, you know, if you're dealing with for the first time, it's it's it seems like maybe kind of a personal question. And so how is it actually related to the left and all of this history, if at all. And I think because of the lingering influence of the new left and the personal is political uh, sort of slogan, 
people think that, you know, the sex that they have in their private lives has to be like sanctioned by Bernie Sanders or Occupy Wall Street movement or something. My gosh. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's okay to have sex that Bernie Sanders would disapprove of, <laughs> like, uh, whatever that even means. Uh, you know, you could have your politics and then you could have your private life. And um, so these were sort of symptoms going around. It was kind of like, I had my own interests. These people were asking me questions. We would do the gender and sexuality readings. But sometimes you kind of have to flesh out in a more introductory form and maybe in more contemporary parlance, like what are the taboos that these readings are meant to at least unearth and maybe kind of deal with. Again, what always just uh, encourage people to do the, the original readings, but um, that was my intention with that, that piece. And the panel discussion, I think because we had a participant who was sort of an 80s generation anarchist who was really into Charles Fourier, William Blake and other people, sort of eclectic, but Charles Fourier in particular, he was able to uh, represent this kind of, I don't know, more sex positive view of sexuality, which I think was a little refreshing on the panel. But we didn't really get to have the sex worker union rep on there or a member of this group called Gay Shame, which we were looking forward to. They're sort of this gay rights group that was very critical of pride. Uh, but we did get the Freedom and Socialist Party member who tried to sort of talk a lot about the relationship between this, mainly women's rights and gay rights. Um, it, I don't know that it got into the sexual question as much as it could have. I'm curious about the audience reaction. What was kind of the, the audience response to maybe the taboos that you guys would have brought up, either in the introduction or in the presentation? You know, both of you guys did these events post Me Too. What were some of the questions or the reactions to what you brought up how how would have that been different had you done that presentation, let's say, 10 years ago, um, back in 20, 2012? Well, I, for one, um, wonder if it would have been maybe less vulgar. It seems like these days the sex-negative attitude has kind of won out. It's like all sex before millennials started reading Foucault or something was rape, I guess. Um, it's very Dworkin-esque, you know? I did stand up for a long time in SF and there were other comedians who around the time that Me Too was started, you know, they'd go on stage and take it over and then, you know, say like this, like it turned into a protest instead of a comedy set. And they would just say like, your grandmas were all raped or something, you know, so it's <laughs> your grandmas, your moms, <laughs> uh, it, they're very vulgar where it's, it's, I guess the idea that consensual sex today, like people are having less sex today because it's consensual implies that uh, women are not interested in sex. And so that's not actually being dealt with uh, directly. You know, it's just like, it's all sort of implied that women hate sex. And so people are having less sex because women finally get to say no. And it begs the question, well, well, if they're red-blooded human beings, why, why wouldn't they have sex or want to have sex? That's not questioned by anyone, it doesn't seem anymore. And I mean, I think that's a pretty major question, unless we've just completely fallen off the deep end into like Puritanism and this kind of like patriarchal protection of like women's honor and purity or something, which it seems like we have. So, David, in your article, so that response to, you know, the Me Too and the millennial sex panic, you're trying to respond to these questions. What was it about this kind of sex panic, Me Too, um, what Audrey's kind of registering as like, desexualization of women and kind of painting them as like disinterested or kind of like victim-like how did you try to deepen that into the history of the left and, it, and its relationship with the left 
I kind of have two responses that are related. So the first response, the experience I had giving a teaching just a month ago at the People's Forum in New York. It made me recall one of the panels that actually motivated me to write the articles that I wrote. And so I thought one way of getting at the deeper questions that were posed in that panel would be through like the audience response at, at this most recent teaching. So um, one of the things that struck me was that a member of the audience, this young gentleman who must be in his early to mid-20s, so definitely a Zoomer, he told me that what I didn't consider is that most of the sex that happens today is non-consensual. And I just, I was just like flummoxed and shocked by that belief. And to me, what I thought was coming up in that discussion and what is a tendency more broadly is the conflation of sex that one might regret, bad relationships, making a poor decision to sleep with someone who might have power over you. Like, these are, like, ambiguous, messy, sometimes terrible emotional circumstances that don't constitute violence or criminality. And so I just felt like, yeah, something's been lost here. And there is a fear of sexuality. I just wanted to to tell the small anecdote that we encountered while doing a teaching on sexual liberation here in Leipzig. We encountered the same thing as you uh, reported, David. It was a young girl that was um, freaked out by the fact that we were talking about a regression or that the millennials have less sex than the previous generations. So rape in marriage was illegalized very late. And she was like, maybe this they had more sex because it was more rape and now it's more consent. This was the provocation and the effect of making that argument for her. Yeah, and then in the 19th century with these laws to preserve public decency, right? It's a way to manage the social discontents posed by the working class. You know, like workers after working at the factory would go to the pubs and get smashed and then they'd participate in either like prostitution literally or, or you know, they'd have, you know, they'd hook up with people and, and that kind of like quote unquote disorderly behavior um, becomes ambiguous because you buy someone drinks, right? And then you take them home. Are you like, is that is that a form of prostitution? These were the kinds of like motivations for the repressive laws that kind of were put back on the books or the reapplication of repressive laws that they weren't executed. Like, I guess my point is that at least then there was a sense of like, there's a kind of social question that these are a response to. Whereas now it seems like it's happening at the level of like an authoritarian psychology of projective identification between a victim and a perpetrator, between prey and predator. Um, that could be easily applied to a number of different dynamics, like a uh, child and adult, in the case of someone like Roman Polanski, right? Where you have like a 13-year-old girl who says she consented 
you know, she, she chose to do drugs. She was well-schooled in drugs and sex when she met Roman Polanski, and she kind of knew what she was doing. Um, and she'll say now as an adult that she regrets that her mother turned it into this whole legal catastrophe for her, right? It actually kind of destroyed her life, she'll say. It can be taken in this way of, like, you know, sexuality between um, two consenting people uh, has this, like, weird predator-prey dynamic or something. Or it could happen between, like, uh, like, a, like, a teacher and a student, which is actually, like, a common thing, right? Like, look at um, the president of France, right? Like, it's something that happens because where do you meet people? You meet people on the job. Like, that's, like, that's where, you know, civic social life takes place. So, yeah, you're going to meet, like, a boss is going to maybe meet a potential romantic partner in an employee. That happens all the time, Right. What kind of is happening is, like, sexuality itself. I guess, oh, before I say that, like, I guess men and women are, like, right, like, men always want sex and, and women just want relationships or something. Like, this is how people talk about it. And it is, like, as Audrey was saying, this kind of weird, it's like a redigestion. It's like a vomit of a previous, like, paternalism. That It's still marked by that same paternalism. It just normalizes the repression of female sexuality, too. Mm-hmm. And things were more open in 2015. Yeah. But go ahead, Audrey. You had another point. It's interesting because the anti-sex attitudes on the, you know, the quote-unquote left, they kind of function similarly to the, the same attitudes on the part of, like, religious conservatives. It kind of makes sex sexier or more transgressive. Sex work used to be common, and people had, like, very liberal attitudes towards it because you had a lot of, like, single young men who... A lot of them were on the spectrum, <laughs> attracted to the tech industry in the Bay, industry in the Bay Area, and it was hard for them to date. I mean, even if they could date, it would be difficult. You know, there was like a bustling sex work industry there for a long time. You know, nowadays making it uh, sort of stigmatizing any kind of uh, interaction or dating with coworkers or people at work makes sex work that much more necessary. But then it's sort of it's stigmatized again, and uh, it, I don't know. It just seems to kind of make sex work more transgressive um, in a way that maybe is unintended. What does a sex panic have anything to do with, you know, freedom in society? So, Audrey, you're bringing up in, in your article how capitalism itself introduces these new forms of sexuality whilst simultaneously constructing kind of like restrictive forms. It simultaneously creates and destroys like new ways of, of sexual expression. Um Whereas you also, in your article, notice there's actually a shift where, so where the left take up the topic of sexuality as um, one of many forms of relations that can transform in like, a freer society or under socialism. Whereas then it kind of like during the 60s or even the post 60s, it actually turns into more of a conversation about a kind of oppressor versus oppressed, gender inequality. And maybe that's where these conversations about, um, kind of the repression of women in sex starts to become salient within the left as like a topic, right? So instead of the conversation being becoming about freedom, um, it becomes about inequality, repression, the fight against oppression. I mean, A, what do you, can I pose the question back to you? It's like, do you think that's kind of like an accurate way of, of framing it? And how conscious do you think people are of, of this history of kind of socialists taking the question up as a question of freedom. I mean, I think there are three issues real quick. I think there's the, there's the issue of like childhood sexuality and what like people like Willem Reich do with that in terms of looking at um, making people 
acquiescent to authority, the church, state, etc., and um, the sort of psychological mechani- mechanisms at play that have political consequences. There's the issue of female sexuality and the way in which, for instance, like German uh, female voters who had just achieved suffrage a few years earlier, you know, this sort of fear of freedom manifesting in and through female fear of their own sexual freedom and having really contradictory political consequences and ultimately helping the Nazis um, come to power. And then there's this issue of like older teenagers who are discovering sex and having sex with each other and they want a good sex life. I kind of mentioned like the RWG member earlier who's sort of asking these questions, really trying to make it seem political, but it's just really about his own sex life. And of course, that's a valid question for us. But Lenin would have looked at that and said, you know, this is and not to use bourgeois and like a Stalinist sort of insult or something, but the sort of obsession with your own sex life and with psychology generally is more of a middle or an upper middle class sort of um, indulgent concern that doesn't really have direct political consequences. And so you should sort of set that aside and, you know, keep your eyes on the prize and stay disciplined and not get sidetracked by those questions unless they uh, feed into some kind of mobilization for socialist politics which, um, you know, Claire Zetkin looked at the sexual question or obviously the question of female uh, oppression and, and said, well, you know, it, it does show uh, these issues can illuminate the extent to which our, our social relations are fairly malleable and that that's one of the hurdles to, you know, sort of teaching lessons that you'd have to get past in order to mobilize people which is to understand how, how flexible all of this is and how it's not all set in stone, even though it seems like it is. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, when I would deal with younger contacts, I had more of the, I tried to channel Lenin a little bit and, and say, you know, you're concerned with your sex life or how to have good sex or whatever is neither here nor there when it comes to socialism. But the issue of like the repression of sexuality and how that pertains at all to politics, that's, that's like the first question that you have to address, right? What is the connection, if at all, so that we don't just kind of naturalize the personal as political? Lisa, I wanted to bring you in, actually. So I know in Germany, there was a recent panel on this topic, gender sexuality and the left. Could you talk a little bit about maybe how you guys were looking back at kind of the work that David, Audrey, other members of Platypus who had engaged with this topic, how did that compare to how you were tackling um, that topic in your panel? We wanted to engage specific symptoms uh, we encountered on campus and um, on the left here in Germany that is really anti-vogue, um, that is anti-postmodern. These identity politics got split in these hardcore camps of queer feminism and radical feminism, materialist feminists. Um, and all this. We wanted to capture this phenomena, these symptoms we face uh, all around us. What we encountered on the panel was these categories of sexuality and gender and family come into crisis in capitalism and the left does react to it. This happens with the question of gender too and these camps they perform a kernel of truth to it and at the same time they are both protest forms of anti-capitalism which is which is really the one-way street um, the left does take if it does fetishize these yeah different camps i guess 
one could really good see how the anti-Vogue approach was infected with its own opposite. It opens up the question how sexuality or gender might um, lead to politics, if at all. So maybe one last question. So what do we learn from hosting the conversation on the left over the time on this topic? So part of what we're doing is we're actually tracking the history of our moment. Like, what does it mean to say that we think that the history of the present is conditioned by the history of the death of the left? And why are we hosting this conversation? We're, we're hosting it so that we can write the history of our present in a way that these obstacles of the death of the left that form at the level of ideas might be able to be avoided or overcome by another generation on the horizon. So right, like we, we're hoping that students can learn from this negatively um, in, in the sense of what's missing or absent in our present moment. But also we can, we can register re like further regression, right? From our present to the past. So like, right, like I guess I did this earlier by raising the questions that were being posed by the new left, which they were already dealing with some significant failures and confusion because of the failure of the revolution from 1917. Um, and we inherit that legacy. But also like with this panel in 2015 that I keep alluding to, no, I, I just thought it was much more open. Like these questions were a bit more on point. Margaret Powers was actually part of the new left and she was part of I think the Chicago Women's Union. I don't know I don't think that's what it's called, but there, she was part of like a kind of a women's union movement in the 1970s. And they also did things like provide abortions in places where it wasn't legal to do so and things like that. And so for her like, you know, she'll make points on this panel like the the relationship between the emancipation of women and, and the struggle to overcome capitalism are non-identical. They're not the same. Like, they're related, but they're, they're not, it's not the same struggle. And, and, you know, you could ask, like, well, what do you mean by that? Or, like, someone like, um, you know, Red Shelta uh, arguing, like, that sex work is work poses the question, you know, and that it's, like, a valuable thing in and of itself, poses the question for the audience and for someone like Yasmin Nair of, well, to what extent is, uh, like, sex work something that we would see in a free society, right? Is this a desirable thing? Or is it something that people are compelled to out of compulsion? Is it actually a mark of an unfree society? Or, you know, Yasmin Nair was kind of like, what is this trans movement that's emerging right now and is really big? And are we kind of repeating some of our past failures or confusion? You know, she was part of a group called Against... Um, equality against equality uh, which was opposed to the legalization of gay marriage because she saw it as a way of integrating what was you know previously a kind of revolutionary social movement for um, sexual emancipation integrating that movement into the state and so you know she was like are we actually repeating some of the past failures with the trans movement and also she was posing the question of like, well, what does it mean to identify as a woman? Might we be reifying and constraining possibilities for sexual emancipation unconsciously, un unbeknownst to ourselves? What does it mean to say like, 
by identifying as non-binary, we're overcoming gender. Like, might we be actually affirming the the concepts of gender and trying to quantify and qualify? Like, you know, if I like cars, that's masculine or something. So I should transition if I if I was born a woman, right? Does that not reify the concept of gender even further? So she was able to kind of pose these questions. These kinds of questions, like, no one was defensive in response to these concerns that were raised on the panel. And I also think that, yeah, these deeper questions were posed of like, what is it that we're really thinking about when we're talking about freedom? How do these questions relate to the struggle for freedom? It's hard to find anyone without vulgar attitudes towards sex and gender. And perhaps that's because you'd have to heed the lessons of socialist writing during the first and second internationals without staying stuck in that history. You know, we had a panelist who was sort of an antiquated fan of Charles Fourier. You know, he sort of loved Fourier like a cute old artifact or something as a means of escaping the present. Um, And then, you know, the other panelist just kind of offered like generic rad lib Democrat party messaging on sex and gender, which is really just like warmed up leftovers of the 80s academy. I think there is a lot of work for us to be done and a lot of conversation we should host, um, especially right now on the left. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for the deep dive into our archives and the history on the left. And yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. Nice talking to you. Thanks for having us. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Villaggi. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!